Uh, why don't we pray? Uh, Father, we are truly thankful to be here as your people who have been forgiven and redeemed by the blood of Christ. Uh, as Peter says, not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Uh, Lord, what great cost you have paid to redeem us unto yourself. And Lord, we want to simply render back to you what is rightfully yours. Uh, We want to give you our obedience, our devotion, our praise, and our worship. And I pray that even now, Lord, you would work that into us as we consider your word. Uh, Jesus said, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So guide us, instruct us in the truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm still working a bit on how to teach this class in terms of the format. Uh, For right now, the idea uh, is just to do kind of an initial pass over the text, trying to get a sense of what's going on, and then working back through it to draw out some application, work out uh, the theological significance of what we see in this passage. Uh, If you remember, Malachi is a post-exilic prophet, which simply means that he prophesied after the Babylonian exile. So we're thinking about somewhere around 450-ish BC. He was confronting uh, a people who were cold towards the Lord. They were embittered. Uh, They were apathetic in their relationship towards the Lord because many of their hopes and their expectations of coming back into the land were not realized when they regathered. And even the temple didn't have the, the glory that the former Solomonic temple did. So that is the overarching uh, sense of, of what's going on in the book, and it's structured with these disputes between the Lord and his covenant people. Uh, and the refrain that you see over and over and over and again throughout the book is, the Lord lays a charge against them, brings an indictment, and it says, but you say, and then the people are pushing back against what God has said concerning them. So that, that's the overall structure and theme of what's going on in Malachi. So let's just read through Malachi 2, 9 to 16, trying to identify the main thing of what's this dispute about? Because remember, it's six disputes. What is this dispute about? And as a helper, keep your eye out for the two issues. There's two issues in the text. Try to identify what those are as we read. And also keep your eyes out for the one key theme word in this passage. So two different issues, one key theme. Uh, would anyone like to read uh, Malachi 2, 10 to 16? Okay, you, we're going to keep reading beyond this too. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one, with a portion of the Spirit in their union? 
And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So, guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So, guard yourselves in your spirit, and do not be faithless. Okay, so as we consider the whole of that passage, uh, there are two main issues that the Lord is confronting them about. Uh, was anybody able to identify what one of those were? They profaned the sanctuary, for one. Okay, good. They, were, they profaned the sanctuary. How did they do that? It's interesting. Interesting connection. We'll talk about it later, but... Married the daughter of a foreign god. Exactly. So they're marrying foreign women, pagan women. And what's the second issue? Divorcing their wives. And divorce. So we see these two issues, both related to marriage. Uh, they're pursuing foreign women, and they're divorcing their wives. So those are the two issues in the text. What is the one key word, if anybody was able to pinpoint that, that kind of serves as the glue that holds this passage together? Faithless. Faithless, exactly. We see it, I think, five or six times uh, they're faithless to one another. They're faithless to God. They're faithless to the wife of your youth. And two times uh, it says, do not be faithless. So even in, in this passage where we see kind of a dual-pronged dispute between the Lord and his people, it all comes under the one umbrella of their faithlessness. Faithlessness to God, faithlessness to each other, and in their marriage, and in their sexuality. So uh, that's just kind of a foundation uh, to get oriented as we consider the text. Now I want to consider a couple things more closely. Uh, just kind of work through in verse 10, just as a note, it says, Have we not all one Father? Uh, as, has not one God created us? Uh, and I think as evangelicals and Christians, we would typically read this and automatically assume, oh, it's talking about God as our Father. But I don't think that's actually what Malachi is referring to. That might be most intuitive to us, but I think the point here is not that they're all made in God's image, and therefore it's wrong to be faithless to one another, although that's true, but the point is that God created them corporately as one people, not individually in that they were born, but that he birthed them as a covenant people of God. So, so don't think of when they were each individually born, but think of the exodus, when God created them and birthed them as a people. So the phrase, have we not all one father, probably refers to, I think, Abraham, or perhaps Jacob. And I think all of this is confirmed by the end of verse 10, where he says, why are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? So I think the fathers, referring to the, the covenant of our fathers, is the same referent where he says, have we not all one father? And what Malachi is highlighting is that their faithlessness to one another is particularly egregious and heinous because they belong to the same people, the same God, they're children of the same covenant. All of these truths should heighten their sense of obligation and fidelity towards one another. And we get this intuitively in the sense of our, our, our natural families even, 
You know, I'll empty my bank account if I find out that my parents are on the street or suffering in some way to make sure that they're taken care of. Why? Because I bear a higher sense of obligation and responsibility towards my parents or my children than I do for every other person in the world. And yet, despite the fact that they were all children of Abraham, despite the fact that that God had brought them together as one covenant people, this did nothing to bridle their faithlessness towards one another. And at this point in the text, uh, we see the charge and accusation of being faithless, but at this point, we don't see exactly what it looks like and what God's talking about. Uh, But then we read on in verse 11, and Malachi says, Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. So the particular content of their faithlessness is that they had married the daughter of 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 foreign gods. And you can see just by the language that Malachi is using, he's really trying to ratchet up the charge with the strongest possible language. It's not just a sin or a transgression, although those are, are bad, but this is an abomination that has been committed in Israel. It's not just, well, Malachi says that by this action, actually, that they've profaned the sanctuary. And he doesn't just say that they've married foreign women, but it's the daughter of a foreign god. And we'll talk more about that later. And it culminates in a curse to the one who does this. This section concludes, Malachi says, May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this. And this idea of being cut off from the people of Israel should make us think back to the Abrahamic covenant. This is the first place that we find this expression. And I'll just read it for you in Genesis 17, 14. Uh, God says to Abraham, Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So circumcision was the mark of God's covenant with Abraham. To not circumcise as a Jew was to basically disown the God of Abraham, to disown yourself from the people of God and from the God of, of Abraham. And therefore, God basically says in Genesis 17, if you would disown yourself, let them be disowned from the people of God. Let them be cut off and forsaken. And I think Malachi here is really making the same point. He's saying to marry a pagan woman is to do the same thing. You are disowning the people of God. You are disowning the God of your people. And thus, the same curse is pronounced on both. And if you have an eye for it, you might think this is kind of just strange and peculiar, this whole emphasis on foreign women. Uh, But if you have an eye for it, it's so prevalent all throughout the Old Testament. You can go back almost as far as you can. You go to Abraham, God singles him out as the head of a people to, to be distinct and different from all the other people. And immediately, this becomes an issue. In Genesis 24, I have it up, 
Uh, Genesis 24, 2-4. Does anyone want to read that for us? And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, quote, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. Notice, this is the first generation of the people of God. And Abraham says, Swear by the God of heaven and earth that you will not take a wife for my son from the Canaanites. Uh, As we read on in Genesis, it's the same thing with Jacob. Uh, We see that this is what one thing that differentiates Jacob from Esau. Uh, this is what marks the downfall of Judah. If you know the story of Judah, it's that he turns aside to a certain Adulamite, and then he marries the daughter of a Canaanite whose name was Shua. And throughout the, the Pentateuch, this is a pressing issue. And before we get to, to application and trying to draw out significance, Uh, I want to discuss how we are interpreting this, how we're understanding this, uh, to make sure we're connecting the right dots. Uh, So why is this such a big deal to God about marrying foreign women? Why is that such a primary concern for the Lord? Because having divided loyalties is going to cause the man of God to sway. If you're married, obviously you have duties to your wife, and if your wife is a, basically the daughter of one God, it's going to drive your heart away like you saw with Solomon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so if we just fixate on the ethnic aspect of it, we're probably going to miss it, and, and it seems like overkill to us. Like, why is it so treacherous for them to marry a non-Jew? But we have to remember that in the ancient world, uh, there's no such thing as a secular state. There's no such thing as separation between church and state, to use our language. And that was true not just in Bible times, but all the way up and through, up until basically the Reformation. Like, if you were born in Germany, you were Lutheran. If you were born in Geneva, you were Presbyterian. If you were born in Rome, you were Catholic. And it's that way all throughout the ancient world. Uh, If you were born a Canaanite, well then you served Canaanite gods. Uh, There is no distinction between your ethnic and your culture and your religious convictions. So certainly this is why it's not an issue primarily or even at all an ethnic issue. Uh, It is a religious, it's a spiritual issue that the Lord is concerned about. Also, we could think about the story of Balaam. He was basically... If you you know the story, he's hired as like a prophetic hitman against the people of Israel. He's uh, hired by Balak to curse the people of God. But every time he tries to curse the people of Israel, he ends up blessing them. Uh, So they they give up on that strategy. And he says, okay, well, if if you want to bring God's curse upon the people, I can't do it, but this is what you should do. Bring out your daughters and basically parade your daughters before the men of Israel and, and solicit them to, to marry them and, and then to mix with them and they'll be drawn, led astray into false worship and that will bring God's curse upon them. And so we see that, that very thing happen in, in Numbers 25, 1 to 2. Does anybody want to read that for us? Any volunteer? Go for it, Josh. Uh, 
While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. Uh, so Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Uh, so this is the explicit reason uh, also why the terms of the conquest were so brutal. We read this in Deuteronomy 7.2. It says, Then you shall devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. Why? Uh, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters and sons or taking daughters for your, your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. So all throughout Genesis, throughout the Pentateuch, this is a huge issue. And nevertheless, all throughout biblical history, we see that this is a stumbling block and a thorn in the side for the people of Israel over and over again. And now 800 years later, having returned from exile, this is still something that they're constantly falling prey to. And if you read the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, we we can't go into it this morning, but this is the thing that Ezra is confessing before the Lord that we're doing it again. Uh, After the Lord has been so merciful to us and has brought us back into the land, we're doing it again. We're marrying all the daughters of foreign gods and taking their gods to ourselves. And so Ezra is confessing that before the Lord. So that's all just to say that this is not an ethnic issue. It's a spiritual and religious issue. Also, is there anything positive in the Old Testament that would make us think that this is not about ethnicity? That that might be too vague of a question. Not really sure how to word it. Are there any stories in the Old Testament involving non-Jewish women that are reflected upon positively? Rahab. Rahab. Yeah, exactly. We have Rahab, who's in Hebrews 11. We have Ruth, who has a book in the Old Testament. Uh, These women are celebrated as heroes of the faith. And guess what? They're not Jews. Uh, But what were they? They're they're women who forsook their gods, who forsook their idolatry, and said, this is the one true God. This is the God that I will worship. And, And so if their hearts were aligned with the God of Israel, the issue is not that they are not Jewish. The issue is that these women were pagan and they're leading, and and really that the people of Israel were pursuing uh, partners who did not believe in Yahweh. Jesus' lineage goes through Ruth. Yeah, both Ruth and Rahab. So, now, as we think about verses 10 to 12 as a whole, let me just, maybe I'll come back to that. Uh, as we think about verses 10 and 12 as a whole, uh, how, would, how would we apply this in our new covenant context? How, how should we think about it for the church? I think it goes to the uh, not being yoked with a, a believer with a non-believer. Yeah, so, so the very obvious one for us is also intermarriage. Uh, The issue, again, is not ethnicity, but it's one of faith, uh, spiritual convictions. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, marry whoever you want, basically, only in the Lord. Obviously, spiritually mixed marriages uh, are a reality for many people, and I'm sure there's people uh, in our church, and perhaps even in this room, uh, that that might be a reality for. And 
That doesn't mean that you can't be faithful and continue to serve the Lord and honor Him. But it's just a reality that there's going to be hardships, there's going to be difficulties that come in that reality. And it's one that we should avoid if we have the ability. Not only will it lead to a lot of heartache, but from a perspective point of view, uh, it's indicative that, that something is wrong with our hearts if in our, our relationship with the Lord, if that's something we are considering. You know, if Christ is preeminent in our hearts, knowing Him, glorifying Him, pleasing Him with all of our thoughts, words, and deeds, all of our time, money, affections are all consecrated to Him, then the idea of joining yourself as one flesh with someone who doesn't share any of that is, is crazy talk. So, it's a, it doesn't necessitate that the person is not a, a genuine believer, but uh, it does reveal that there, there's something not right if you have a professing Christian who's pursuing a relationship with a non-Christian. Uh, and it's something that, that should be addressed. So obviously... Oh, go, go ahead, Raymond. Yeah, I just wanted to kind of point out that uh, historically speaking, um, men tend to be like spiritually kind of wishy-washy and weak. I was like, like the wife says, "Hey, I think we should go worship this." I'm, oh, well, whatever you say, honey. Let's go do that because I don't take it upon myself to have the fortitude to make any kind of, you know, like to go back to the garden. For instance, mm-hmm. this is where it starts. You know, oh, we should eat the fruit. Oh, God's well, whatever God says. I don't care. Let's, I'll just do what my wife says. Yeah. You know, yeah. and do that. It's yeah. like. Yeah, yeah, and that, that, that can lead to an extended discussion about the relationship between men and women and authority and, and these kinds of things. But I would also say, is there any other applications beyond marriage that, that we could make for New Covenant Christians? Well, oh, I was just going to say, yeah, we, we are prone to pursue um, things that we believe will give us pleasure. Mm-hmm. And... Um, that are against God's mm-hmm. will, and we know that um, because we think that we can do better, mm-hmm. or that's going to be better for us. But we uh, are just deceived, and instead of a, a wholehearted devotion towards God's will, which will actually bring us the joy and fulfillment that we were created to have, we pursue those things for that will give us temporary pleasure. Yeah, and and so the the, the root of that. Is faithlessness. We're not actually believing that through devotion to God, we will have what we were created to have. We will have the true satisfaction, true fulfillment, true pleasure. And so, uh, and, and then we forget that this God is not God does not have um, these rules for Israel or for us or these um, these commands. His will. Because he wants what's bad for us. He wants harm. That's not why. This is for our good. Because yeah. he wants good for us. And, uh, but we don't believe that. And so we pursue that which we can see and, and that which we think is going to give us pleasure. And then it Yeah. So certainly we could frame it in that context, very broad, that the Lord has given these commandments for their good. Uh, he's a good shepherd. He seeks to cause his people to lie down in green pastures and beside still waters. And they're looking outside the gate, outside the fence, to use Paul Tripp's language, and they think that the green pastures are out there beyond the parameters of God's 
God's word and God's will and God's commandments. Ben, did you want to say something? Yeah, I was just thinking, uh, I mean, one application that it includes not being the ultimate believers, but maybe it broadens it, is that like, what we do with our sexuality reflects our spirituality. Like, whether it's, you know, any kind of, you know, whether it's pornography or other, you know, sexual morality, any kind of um, deviancy from God's plan there is actually dishonoring to him, and he actually cares about that. It's not like we can just be, you know, real, being spiritual means reading your Bible and going to church. It means, you know, use your sexuality to honor him. Yeah. Yeah, we have a lot of, a lot of problems in, in churches where they allow themselves to be influenced by the outside world's uh, views. You know, like, uh, you have churches that are saying that, well, you know, Transgenderism, I guess that's okay, and things like you know, the influences of the world can destroy the church yeah. if, it's, if they're allowed in. We have to draw that line between what God says and what the world says. Yeah. So, so these are all good applications uh, that we can make. I drew it, and they're all legitimate. I, I drew one uh, a little bit closer to marriage in in that that remember how this issue is framed. Why then are we faithless to one another? The pursuit was a failure to love and be faithful to the the whole covenant community, actually. All of our relationships, not just marriage, but all of our relationships are subject to the scrutiny of, do they have a love for the Lord? Are are they a believer? Are they going to help me in my pursuit of God and my worship of Him? And we often think about the passage, do not be unequally yoked in 2 Corinthians 6, where Paul says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? And there's actually nothing in the text itself which would relegate that to dealing with only marriage. All of our relationships are subject to that principle. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have any relationships with unbelievers. Uh, we should. <laughs> Let that be clear. I'm saying we should have un- relationships, friendships with unbelievers. But we need to ask ourselves and, and be, be careful because, and think who has access to the most intimate details and parts of your life? Who do you confide in in the most weighty matters of your life? Who do you look for counsel and advice? Uh, Are they people who are godly and who are shaped by Scripture, who are shaped by love for Christ and by the Gospel? Uh, Or, you know, are they just your unbelieving work buddies? Well, they're not going to give you good counsel in what to do in marriage difficulties. They're not going to give you good counsel in how to raise your children. They're not going to give you good counsel for any of the issues of life. Uh, That's not to say that they don't have any wisdom, but they don't have true biblical wisdom that, that's centered upon honoring and glorifying Christ. I see that, um, you know, it's spiritual application for both men and women, but I also see, like, it's pretty clear from all of the scripture that men are called upon everywhere to be godly men first and foremost, and then to hold that into who they take into uh, a marriage covenant, who they, who they you know, uh, that the, the, the men are called to honor God mm-hmm. in their stuff, you know, mm-hmm. and to be spiritually proactive about things, you know. Yeah. 
um, in these matters. It's like, no, but this guy, he says, uh, God doesn't care if I marry this lady. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, be man of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just, yeah. Uh, so, I, I would say, just to, again, highlight that this is certainly not <laughs> about a, a present mandate that, that would forbid interracial marriage, as it has been used uh, in these types of passages in Scripture where, where people have appealed to for anti-interracial marriage. That's not how that was really even came in. That's not what was important then, and it's certainly not what is important now. Uh, but it is something that we should consider about faithfulness to the covenant people of God and the God of the covenant. And that is revealed and manifested by who we yoke ourselves together with, whether that is in marriage or whether that is in a myriad of other relationships that are, that are meaningful and intimate. We should be careful and, and guard ourselves, confiding in and seeking counsel from people who are worshipers of the one true God. Uh, but we need to keep on moving because there's a whole other section. Okay, so, as you can see in verse 13, uh, there is a pivot. Malachi says, and this second thing you do. So, we have the first issue of marrying pagan women, and then in verses, was it 13? 13 and following, uh, we get to this second issue of divorce. So, let's just read through these verses one more time, all together, and then we'll work our way through it. He says, and this second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. I think the the surface of this text is pretty straightforward. Can anyone summarize simply what is going on in these verses? Like a real short summary. You're crying on the altar, begging for God, you know, to, to bless you, and you're actively living in sin. Yeah, exactly. The, the Lord does not accept their worship because they have been faithless to the wife of their youth. Uh, and again, we see this word three times in this passage, verse 14. Uh, the wife of your youth to whom you've been faithless, verse 15. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your Youth, and again in verse 16, so guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So, even though this is clearly a second issue, it's also clearly under the same umbrella of being faithless. Uh, And more exactly, their faithlessness was that they were divorcing their wives. And there are a lot of particular issues that I would like to get to, and maybe we will. Hopefully we can at least kind of address them. But I don't want to miss the the forest for the trees in this passage. So let me try to highlight one of the main things that I think we should take out of this whole passage. Uh, A few weeks ago, we noted how the Israelites were bringing their blind and blemished 
goats and lambs, just their, their kind of leftovers. And they're bringing that to the Lord to, for their sacrifices. Uh, and I would say that was clearly a, a vertical issue between God and them of how they were worshiping. Uh, but now we're looking at issues of who they're marrying and their divorce. And as we think about these issues, are these vertical issues or are they horizontal issues in their relationships with one another? And both. Okay? Both. It's good. It's both. What in the text, whether it's from the verses prior to this or, or here, would make us think that this is a both issue? Because the Lord was with us between them in the marriage. Mm-hmm. So they're divorcing their wife, and so that's the horizontal. And in a way, they're divorcing from God because they're breaking the vows that they made to the wife through God. Mm-hmm. Good, good. Uh, a- any other things that, that we would highlight in the text that says... Uh, Oh, we've got both of these aspects going on in the passage, kind of explicitly. In verse 15, it seems to indicate a portion of the Spirit. I don't know if that means the Spirit of God is actually in their union. I don't know, that's kind of a difficult verse to understand, but it seems to be pointing to the fact that God is actually somehow part of this union that they're now breaking. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting... (laughs) And I didn't pursue that, and I don't have any good answers to exactly what that means, or I, I think it's something mystical that, that's going on in marriage. We'll talk a little bit about it. But I, I would just... Oh, go ahead, Steve. Well, to me, it's God the offspring. Mm-hmm. Is, is, I have a question about this as well, but speaking of going both, right? If you're marrying foreign women, or women married foreign yeah, men, or yeah, whatever, yeah, yeah. Um, you're... And, you know, you're, you're pursuing other gods, right? It's, they're obviously not going to have godly offspring, mm-hmm. right? And if um, if you're divorced, I mean, it's, it's just yeah. all like, yeah. it, it's about a generational love for the Lord and continuing. Yeah, so, so they, these are all good observations. I, I would just highlight, uh, again, the text starts, Malachi says, why are we faithless to one another? That's clearly horizontal talk. Um, the fact that they're willing to forsake the covenant people of God and join themselves to foreign pagan people is an act of faithlessness against the people of Israel. But then immediately after that, so this is in the prior passage, uh, he says, Judah has been faithless and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord. So by this same act, they are being faithless to one another and they're profaning the sanctuary of God. And then you get to verse 12. Uh, it says, May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. Uh, well, clearly, now it's a vertical issue. The Lord is taking issue with them doing this. Uh, he's not going to receive their worship. And then we get down to divorce. Uh, that's obviously a horizontal issue when you're divorcing your spouse and you're breaking the covenant that you made with them. Verse 14 says, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. And then again, we see in verse 16, he ratchets up the language and says, the man who does this covers his garment with violence. Clearly, horizontal issue. People-to-people relationships. 
Yet we see that this issue is introduced in verse 13 by the reality that it's on account of these horizontal issues that the Lord no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from their hands. And so, I, I hope this is clear, but what do we learn about ex- offering acceptable worship to God from the, the presence of these, you know, both horizontal and vertical aspects of the text? Does that, does that make sense? What do we learn about offering true worship to God by how these are joined together? Our worship uh, to God is not disconnected from our horizontal relationships. Yeah, exactly. So we like to compartmentalize. We like to have our boxes. And if we think most, if we think that we can worship God over here in spirit and in truth and offer Him something that, that is acceptable and pleasing in His sight, and then disobey Him over here or treat people and dishonor the image of God in individuals, then we're deluding ourselves. Uh, we cannot worship God over here and then disobey, treat people terribly over here. Most directly, I would say, is that marriage itself affects our worship. I think certainly we should draw this out, uh, that God did not accept their worship because their faithlessness in their marriage. Uh, And this is true in big ways and in small ways. Uh, So to be really obvious, uh, if you are committing adultery on Friday and then you come to church Sunday morning and just thoughtlessly, oh Lord, I love you. You're so great and glorious. I just love the gospel. It's so wonderful. Uh, I love being called by your name. I think I can say with a high degree of confidence that the Lord does not accept that worship. He's not pleased with it. But maybe something that's a little bit closer to home for most of us is that I have a history that Grace can attest to of being critical, of being ungracious, of highlighting things that, oh, well, you could have done it this way. This would have been better. Highlighting all the ways that things could have been done differently rather than just being grateful for what she has done. And if that is my attitude, just a critical, ungracious attitude throughout the week, and then I come Sunday morning without any repentance and say, Lord, I praise you for your grace towards me. I praise you for how you accept me despite all my flaws and my shortcomings. Oh, something's wrong there. Uh, Is the Lord pleased with that worship? Well, it, it certainly affects it. And, and we see this borne out in the New Testament. So, for example, 1 Peter 3, 7. I'll just read it to you. Peter says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the wife as a weaker vessel, since they are the heirs of life with the heirs of the grace of life with you, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So, is living with your wife in an understanding way a horizontal issue or a vertical issue? Yes. (laughs) Exactly. Clearly it's both. Uh, The failure to do so will hinder your prayers, a.k.a. God will say the same thing to you that he said to the Jews in Malachi. I don't regard your offering or accept it. I don't receive your prayer. I would say wives, if you are constantly questioning and publicly undermining your husband, this will affect 
the acceptability of your worship to God. Uh, and this is to say nothing of the, the inward bitterness and anger or unforgiveness, critical, criticalness that can just stew in our hearts without ever finding outward expression. Uh, with all of these things, I would say, with Malachi, verse 15 and 16, guard yourselves in your spirit. Of course, from the big things like divorce and adultery, but also from the little acts of unfaithlessness that eat away and corrode our marriages. Divorce does not happen as one big act of unfaithfulness. Adultery does not happen as one act of unfaithfulness. They're the results of a, small, of a thousand smaller acts of unfaithfulness that have led up to that. So if we find ourselves thinking about, interacting with, or soliciting the attention of people of the opposite sex who are not our spouse in an inappropriate way, then guard yourselves in your spirit. Likewise, if we find ourselves nurturing bitterness in our hearts, meditating upon the shortcomings of our spouse, listing to ourselves all the grievances that that we have against them, I'd say with Malachi, guard your spirit from these things. Because they will not only wreak havoc on your marriage, but they will wreak havoc on your relationship with God. Because it's not just a horizontal issue. The things that plague your marriage will also plague your relationship with the Lord if they're not dealt with and actively fought against. So just to be honest, for me personally, and I think for Grace, the idea of divorce is inconceivable. Like a million miles away, we're just not, we're not thinking in those categories. However, the idea of mentally and emotionally kind of just checking out of the marriage because it's too hard and we don't know what to do, we don't know how to make progress, that hasn't always been as far afield. And maybe everyone else just has a much better marriage and you you never encounter such things. Uh, But in those times, it's truths like this, actually, that have done the most to anchor me. Because as soon as I have the thought, like, I don't know what to do, it's too hard, I'm never going to be a good husband, so I might as well not try. I immediately then think, well, am I just going to stop worshiping God? (laughs) Because if I don't, pursue a healthy relationship with my wife, I can't have a relationship, a healthy relationship with my God. Am I just going to stop following Jesus? Because Jesus commanded me to, to love husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And obviously I'm not going to live up to that, I know, but to make the categorical decision that I'm not even going to try, I'm not even going to try to obey Christ as Lord anymore. That's just not compatible with being a follower of Jesus in any decision where he gives you a command as Lord. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Uh, And so checking out of our marriages is simply not an option. Uh, Even if you're staying in it, it's incompatible with Christianity. And so I'm sure these things that I'm about to say are not true of anyone in this room, but I'm going to say it anyways because this is how preachers talk and I want to make my point. But, you know, husbands, you might be married to, you know, the most obnoxious, nauseating woman in the state of California. But 
as a follower of Christ, you don't ever have the option of saying, I'm done trying to love this woman. I'm just over it. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. You mean, even when she doesn't meet my conditions, even when she hasn't earned it, even when she doesn't hold up her side of the bargain? Yes! (laughs) You mean exactly the way that you haven't met the conditions of Christ? The way that you haven't held up your side of the bargain in your relationship to God? The way that you haven't done anything to merit His love for you? So, quite frankly, it doesn't matter what she has or hasn't done. As long as you are a follower of Christ, and as long as you are married to her, it's God's word and command for you to love her. And to be honest, we might not even do that good of a job. But it's not an option as a Christian to say, I'm not going to try. And, of course, here's the rub for the wives, that you might be married to the most loathsome, despicable man in the state of California, but as a follower of Christ, you don't ever have the option of saying, I'm just done trying to honor this man. I'm done trying to respect him. I'm done trying to to maintain this relationship. I just can't do it anymore. I'm checking out. Again, there might be times where you fail to do that, but simply making the categorical decision that I'm not going to try to honor him. I'm not going to try to obey what the Lord has commanded me to do is not compatible with being a follower of Christ. It's not compatible with offering true worship to God. You cannot live in covenant with God over here while violating your marriage covenant over here. That's just not how God has set up Christianity. I don't want to spend a ton of time here because there's a couple things that I'd like to talk about. We have nine minutes. Uh, But if most directly we see that marriage affects our relationship with the Lord, what would we see most broadly? And I'm just going to answer the question because we have limited time. But simply, like, like Grace said at the beginning, that all of our horizontal relationships impact our worship of God. Uh, and I just want to make this explicit because here we are in Malachi, in a minor prophet that's obscure, that nobody pays attention to, and we're dealing with issues of them marrying foreign women and, and then divorce. But it's an obscure passage that most people would overlook. And immediately... We're catapulted if we just notice these things of the relationship between their, their ethical practices with one another and how that impacts their relationship with God. We're catapulted from 450 BC in a minor prophet into the very heartbeat of Christian ethics. This is how Jesus summarizes the whole law. The first, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And guess what? If you're not loving your neighbor as yourself, you can't love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. These two, God has woven together. And we don't have the right or the ability to compartmentalize what God has joined together. Jesus says, if you're standing there at the altar, offering your gift, and there remember that your brother has something against you, what should you do? Well, just worship God, because that's one thing, and then 
you can deal with it later. No, he says, leave your gift there at the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Why? Because your gift, your worship, isn't acceptable to God while you stand with undealt with conflicts and unresolved issues with your brothers. So, and we, we go on and on and develop this a lot. But the, the most overarching broad principle is simply that that God has joined together our worship of him with our treatment of one another. So we talk, I talk in vertical and horizontal, I think it's helpful, but it's also helpful to realize that God has joined these things together, uh, that we can't completely uh, separate them. I'm going to pivot a little bit to trying to draw out a little bit of theological significance, what we're learning about marriage from this passage. So what do we learn about the nature of marriage from verses 14 and 15. You can get your nose in the text, read it over again. What, what do we learn about the nature of marriage? What is it? It's a covenant. Good. And it's committed. Good. It's a covenant. That's good. And that's something that is actually very common and very familiar to us to use that language. But somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is the only passage in the whole Bible that speaks of marriage as a covenant that, that I can think of off the top of my head, at least. Uh, that uses that actual language of marriage is a covenant. So marriage is a covenant. What, what else do we see? Well, it's not just a covenant between the two of you. It's a three-way covenant. When you make that vow, you are also making it with the Lord. Mm-hmm. Because he's there as a witness of this. And so it is not just a covenant with your spouse. It's a covenant with God. And if you violate any portion of that, you're breaking the covenant that you made to the Lord. Yeah, so we see this because the Lord was witness before you and the wife of your youth. So in one sense, the Lord is, is presented as a, as a witness of the covenant. Uh, and yet we see as, as we read on that he's an active participant in it. And as Ben was highlighting, you know, what exactly is being conveyed by that he made them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union. Well, I'm not going to answer that question of exactly what is happening, but I think it might be something that is a bit mystical and a bit spiritual. But the, the main point that I just want to highlight is that if marriage is merely a, a mutual agreement between two people that they freely enter, uh, then it's a mutual agreement that they can freely annul whenever they uh, consent to it. They say, well, we entered into it, we can annul it. We have the, the right and the authority to do that. But it's not just something that you and your spouse made an agreement to. It's something that God did. And that's the important part that when we think about the nature of marriage, uh, that this is something that God does. So even if the two people arbitrarily decide that they no longer want to be married, uh, and they say, we're no longer married. Well, God says, wait, wait, hold up. (laughs) I'm the one who did it. So just because you say you're not married anymore doesn't mean that I say you're not married anymore. And again, this is why when we get into the New Testament, Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Why is that? Because, you know, if Joe Schmo, who is a Christian, illegitimately divorces his wife and then marries another, he thinks that he's 
consummating that second marriage. And Jesus says, actually, you're not consummating your second marriage. What you're doing is you're committing adultery in your first marriage. That's what's actually happening. Because just because you got a piece of paper that says you were divorced before the state doesn't mean that your marriage was actually dissolved before and in God's eyes. So when we think about marriage, it's a covenant between man and a woman that's before God, but it's also a divine act a, where God joins two people together and they become one flesh. Now, as a preface to my next question, we're almost done. How does the wider American culture think about the purpose of marriage? Or just Western culture. Well, what's the purpose of marriage? It's a civil contract. Yeah, that's true. It's what it is. But most people don't... Yeah. So, our happiness, our needs, uh, you know, we use language, you see in movies, like, about... That person makes me complete, they make me whole, they, they satisfy all your needs. And that is what, in the wider culture, you're looking for in a spouse. The person who makes you whole, who makes you happy, who gives you joy. And that's basically the sum and substance of marriage. So then when you no longer have that, well, there's no point in still being married anymore. But what do we see in this passage is at least one purpose that God has in marriage. Yeah, children and godly children, as Steve highlighted earlier. And I would say that we should note that this is not God's only purpose in marriage. Uh, There's other purposes, uh, like companionship. God made Eve because he saw that it was not good for Adam to be alone. And so he made him a helper. It also has theological and and redemptive purposes of of picturing Christ in the church. Uh, The marriage exists for purity and for pleasure, all these things. But... The one that God highlights here is godly offspring. The the propagation of the church, really, in the world. And perhaps ancient Israelites are more like us than we realize, uh, because perhaps they needed to be reminded that your marriage isn't just about you. Your marriage isn't even just about your family. Your marriage is about the welfare of the church. It's about the advancement of God's purposes in a dark world. And one of God's purposes is for, for us to raise up a next generation of people who love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, who reflect His image and His glory and His goodness and bring the gospel to a dying world. That is what God is seeking. One of the things that God is seeking in the institution of marriage. Uh, and so if you're thinking in those categories... And then when you encounter difficulty in your marriage and you have hardship and maybe that person's not meeting all your needs and they're not satisfying you, well, not to be callous, but it's like, who cares? <laughs> um, because God didn't give marriage just so you could be happy and fulfilled. There's a purpose that transcends you and your felt needs. It's that there would be godly offspring that would come forth from that union. Okay, it's 10 o'clock, so I want to be good to, to stop. Uh, so we'll, we'll close. Uh, if you have any questions, you can ask them afterwards or, or comment. I want to make sure people are free to go. Uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for marriage. Uh, we thank you for the good purposes that you have in it of 
godly offspring, uh, but also of companionship, of uh, purity and, and pleasure that you provide in the context of marriage, of, of how we can reflect the gospel even in our marriages. Uh, I pray that you would help us to be faithful to one another uh, in our marriages, that you would help us to be faithful to the covenant people of God. And most of all, that you would help us to be faithful to you, that you would be the one who guides and directs and governs uh, all of our our thoughts and emotions and our ambitions and desires. Uh, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to to be faithful. We we ask for your forgiveness in the ways that, that we have been faithless, Lord. We acknowledge that there have been many big ways and small ways uh, that, that we do not live as we ought to. And, and so uh, for those things, Lord, we, we thank you for the blood of Christ that cleanses us from our sin. Uh, we ask for your grace and your strength to grow in greater conformity to Christ and, and obedience to your word. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.